0: I went back to Board Panda at that point (laughs) to the website and I posted my pictures there hoping that they would get some traction and surprisingly enough I didn't realize this but National Geographic editors were roaming on those websites back then and I also got an email from an editor in Serbia and she reached out to me and she said hey would you be willing to maybe write like a short article about The pictures that you took in Iceland of your icebergs for National Geographic in Serbia for the online kind of publication. Obviously, I said yes, because I didn't realize that I could even get into a publication like National Geographic with my pictures.
1: It starts with just taking that leap.
0: Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose
1: something that even if it fails, fails, you are going to be proud of. It
0: doesn't
1: matter how badly you got beat.
0: Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become
1: a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go
0: for
1: that. I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. A seven-page spread in National Geographic? That was the culmination of years of work. Years of cold emailing publications, posting to small online forums, hoping for photos would get noticed. This passion would take her love of nature from a childhood in Germany to remote Nordic villages, cliffside bird's nests, and vulnerable populations in Mongolia. Today, Lana is a National Geographic explorer who specializes in conservation, photography, and biology. But before her first publication, before her journey halfway across the world, and before she even picked up a camera, Lana was the soon-to-be child of a couple escaping war.
0: My name is Lana Tanier. I am a Croatian-American based in Munich, Germany. Uh, My parents came here as a result of the war in Yugoslavia. And currently, I am a National Geographic Explorer and a photographer focusing on conservation topics um, related to wildlife conservation and, in particular, marine conservation. My father was studying in Delaware, which is where I was born. And he was doing a PhD, but my mom got homesick. She was pregnant with me um, in the States. I was born there. She had a lot of trouble kind of taking care of a baby while my dad was doing his PhD. So they returned to Croatia, which is where my family's originally from, um, with my dad hoping that he could continue studying there. And um, basically, at that point in time, this was like, I guess, 1991 is when um, the war in Yugoslavia started to kind of like heat up. And when things started to happen in different countries in which were part of Yugoslavia back then.
1: And how did the war break out? And like, where was your mom during that?
0: My parents were in the main city of Croatia called Zagreb. And that part of Croatia actually wasn't um, a war zone. So the wars happened on the borders between Like Bosnia and Serbia, as well as Croatia and uh, Serbia at that time. But however, we did have like um, remnants of, or at least like signs that the war was happening. There were snipers on the buildings. My parents would have to go into bomb shelters because there were alarms. They would see planes flying over, like Serbian planes flying over the city, and they were scared that those were. And they were going to drop bombs, so everyone had to hide in bomb shelters. And that's the point at which my parents said, like, we need to leave because they were scared my dad was going to get drafted in the army. And actually, my parents packed up their things and left a week before all of the borders closed. My dad is a computer engineer. He got a job in Germany, very last minute at a company. And if he hadn't gotten a job, they would not have been able to leave because at that time, like germany wasn't accepting anyone who ha- didn't have stable income and who wasn't able to provide for their family so um this basically happened like a week before all of the borders closed and the rest of my family stayed in croatia luckily croatia, uh luckily zagreb wasn't you know the city that got attacked so everyone was fine but um all of the men got drafted in the army so my dad would have been in the army and there are a lot of kids Um, who grew up in my generation who grew up without fathers because of the war. So I got very lucky.
1: What are some of your earliest memories of Germany?
0: Some of my earliest memories of Germany were of me just as a child being out in nature. I would play with frogs, like I would try to chase lizards. When we were on vacation in Italy, I would constantly like be climbing trees and getting really dirty, getting all of my clothes ripped um, (laughs) because I was playing out um in you know in nature essentially just like with other kids um all of, all day long so um those are kind of my earliest memories of just kind of being a rambunctious child playing out in nature and kind of loving the feeling of being outside and being free but on the other hand i also did get very influenced by disney movies i would watch like a lot of disney I would watch uh, The Lion King or Bambi, and I would always like cry when all of the sad scenes would come on. And I was like, I want to protect all these animals. Like I'm, you know, that can't be happening out there right now. <laughs> so um, those are kind of like my early influences of being kind of connected to nature, or kind of um, having that initial interest of understanding more about animals and trying to protect them, and kind of trying to understand more about my surroundings.
1: When did you start? Like picking up a camera in association with that and just like exploring your surroundings
0: so as i was growing up we didn't have digital cameras we still had film cameras and um my parents had this like film camera that we would just use to take vacation photos and um when i was around 11 12 years old i was actually taking my camera this small film camera with me everywhere we went so Every time we would go hiking somewhere, I would kind of take the camera with me. If we were on vacation, I would take my camera with me. Like that was kind of the first time that I was consciously taking pictures with a camera. Already back then, I was like capturing anything and everything that I could see. It wasn't even family photos. Sometimes it was just like random photos of nature, detail shots of like where we were, street photography, like shots of people on the streets. Um, so that was kind of the earliest that I started to explore.
1: Can you tell me about your first encounter with His Dark Materials?
0: Um, When I was, I think, around 12 or 13 years old, I read His Dark Materials by Philip Pullman, and it really inspired me to kind of go out and explore the Arctic, because in his books, he writes a lot about the arctic and about like polo bears and about the different animals that roam around there it's a fantasy book so it's a little bit more like based on like polar bears that are i guess with human kind of characteristics that are like fighting um some other communities out there that are against them or something like that i can't really remember the details anymore But um, essentially what he was writing about is how cold the environment was, how difficult it was to survive there, about the snowstorms, about like how tough it was out there and also about how beautiful it was out there. So he would write about the northern lights and how they were dancing in the sky and how you could see the Hmong like the shining stars and how um, the northern lights were magical. They had like magical properties. So that inspired me and I was like does this really exist is this real or is this just like a fantasy book and then I was um kind of reading up about the northern lights and I understood that they really exist and I got really excited I was like this is one of my goals in life like I want to see the northern lights I want to see these beautiful kind of like magical structures.
1: But as you develop that that interest in like photography, can you lead me up into the Lee Strasberg stuff? Because that was more acting initially, right?
0: That was more acting indeed. I initially started to express kind of my own creativity in school through acting. I was a very shy child. When I was growing up, I was like, always a good student, but very quiet, not really like expressing myself or raising my voice or like talking in class. I was always in the corner, just like kind of doing my own thing. And when I was a teenager, I kind of thought this kind of has to end. Like, I need to figure out how I can become more confident and how I can become more outspoken. Uh, So I joined my high school theater and I just initially kind of started out in smaller roles, built my way kind of like up to larger roles until I got a lead in one of the theater plays that they were doing for school. And I realized that I really like acting because it allows me to kind of, like, express myself without actually having to, like, be vulnerable in terms of, like, my own character. I could just, like, express myself through other characters. And I loved telling stories of, like, other people, other characters. Um, So that initially was, like, my first way of expressing my own creativity and my own thoughts beyond, like, just the photography that I was doing on vacation and ultimately I thought that I wanted to go into acting after that and um I joined a summer course for young actors at Lee Strasberg during my summer holidays in New York which was kind of my first contact with the states as well with New York and did I think six weeks of acting at the institute
1: So how did that stack up to what you thought it would be?
0: Ultimately, I decided that I didn't want to pursue it as a career because it was a very competitive and a very kind of insecure career. So for me, um, at the same time as I was pursuing acting, actually, I also picked up like a film camera for the first time. And I was trying to like, I was at a crossroads trying to decide if like, I want to go into acting or I want to go into filmmaking And I realized that like through filmmaking, I can also express myself and also tell stories that perhaps no one else has told before. I can also write my own scripts. I can kind of like have a little bit more flexibility in terms of the story I'm telling, but, um, it's also going to allow me to do what acting has allowed me, which is kind of like to be vulnerable and to kind of be creative and express stories from, my own point of view
1: let's talk about your the first film that you directed um uh because that was around 2004 right
0: i believe so yeah uh i directed a short film when i was in school i was around 15 16 years old and my friend and i we wanted to just like during our summer break we wanted to shoot a short film for fun um it was kind of like a Semi horror story and centered around very like teenager specific horror story. It centered around around like a love relationship and and jealousy and like a girl who accidentally sees her boyfriend with another girl and she uh, decides that she really wants to hurt her. It turns out that you know she wants to murder her, which is like extreme. (laughs) But that was how we thought as teenagers back then. Um, so we shot like a horror film practically, um, during the summer break and it ended up actually winning a couple of youth prizes in the UK. And also I believe one in the States, as far as I can remember. So that was like the time when I saw, okay, maybe I'm not such a bad storyteller and maybe this could be like a career I can go into. So actually my experience at Lee Strasberg and being in the center of New York City showed me how amazing the creative scene is in in New York. And it gave me a first taste of what I wanted to experience during my studies. And that's kind of why I decided to go to New York, because I saw that it was like the center of creativity, of filmmaking, of theater, of storytelling. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to be kind of at the epicenter of where all everything was happening. Um, so my film school actually led to me going to stu- uh, my acting school, sorry, actually led to me going to film school in New York.
1: What was the decision to go to New York? Like what kind of conversations did you have with either your parents or other people?
0: The conversation that was had with my family in particular was primarily that, you know, it was very far. (laughs) Um, So we essentially kind of tried to figure out how we would best be able to keep in touch. And if there were any people that I could go to if i was in trouble in new york.
1: What was new york like just when you start trying to have to like live there and and learn there?
0: So my first week in new york was like a mixture of excitement and pure fear. I was I realized that it was actually happening that i was all by myself. That i was actually in new york and i was without anyone that i knew. I was without family. I was completely left to basically fend for myself and That was scary, but it was also exciting. There were a lot of like new experiences, like opening a bank account for me was new. Um, Living with other people was new for me. I lived at home till I was 18. And then suddenly I was like in a student in student housing with four other girls. So that was new.
1: Were there any moments or you felt that it was hard?
0: Oh, I was really struggling like the first weeks. I was super homesick. I was... um, getting used to the situation of living like with four other people. um, I had to develop a lot of like communication skills to be able to set boundaries and to say like what I expect or what I want from other people. So suddenly I was surrounded by people 24 seven. And that was something that I just had to get used to. And it was a stressful situation for me, but ultimately it also allowed me to like grow as a person and become more confident in expressing myself and communicating um, in essentially also just understanding like how to read people better, which allowed me to become a better storyteller, I think.
1: Yeah, so what was your first gig and the storytelling world.
0: So after I graduated, I worked as an editor for a nonprofit called Just So You Know. It was a small nonprofit and it produced videos of cancer patients. So it was either testimonials of people who had uncurable cancer who wanted to produce a video of their experiences kind of talking about their life talking about their treatments kind of for the purpose of education and for the purpose of just leaving like a nice memory for their families it also featured cancer survivors who were sharing their stories and their experiences to a community trying to help others to understand kind of what types of treatments they were going through and how other people can also survive cancer slash what types of treatments they can do. So I was editing all of these interviews and all of these testimonials for this nonprofit. And that was my first gig in which I realized that I wanted to do more meaningful work.
1: What do you mean by that?
0: I always felt like a larger purpose was sort of missing to these stories. And that was like the first moment editing these videos of cancer patients that I realized I actually want to do kind of this type of nonprofit NGO work and tell stories that are really meaningful to someone that can make a difference for someone. And after that, I moved back to Germany and I spent two and a half years looking for jobs, which I didn't get in the film industry in Germany.
1: Why did you move back to Germany?
0: I didn't really see much of a future in the film industry in the States anymore when I graduated, just because, as I said, of these like experiences that I had of just being a very small component of a larger mechanism that was producing stories.
1: Do you feel burnt out when you left?
0: I did feel quite burnt out. I mean, the program or film school in general is very rigorous. So we were practically producing like a short film every week. Wow. Also having to kind of focus on doing a lot of classes and work. So I was, as I said, I was doing two different jobs, trying to sustain myself. So it was a lot at the end of the day. And I realized that I didn't want to be as far away from my family, at least not forever. I wanted to have like a little bit more access to being able to just like visit my family. And I just wanted to settle uh, in one place. And I decided that that was it was more convenient. And it was more, I guess, of a long term plan for me to just be back in Europe.
1: Do you think at that moment, you were settling?
0: At that moment, at least I was settling with family, but in terms of career, I was definitely not settling because I was very, very confused in terms of like where I wanted to go after finishing film school. I knew that film wasn't necessarily like the the direction that I wanted to go into anymore, but I also didn't know what I wanted to do.
1: Did you feel lost? Do you feel excited? Like what was the emotional pairing of being back from New York at home, unsure of what to do next?
0: It was a lot of fear and a lot of confusion. I felt quite lost. I was trying to figure out what it was that I really wanted, but I wasn't really sure which direction I wanted to go into the film industry in Munich, where I'm based, is very, very small and mostly focuses on like TV series. And that was something that I wasn't interested in pursuing anymore at all. Theater wasn't really an option for me at that point because my acting skills were definitely not up to par of professional actors. So I was searching and I was struggling and I was trying to write my own scripts and hoping that perhaps I could like produce them by myself, but those never came to fruition. And, after two and a half years, I actually just started picking up a camera and going back out into nature and doing what I originally was doing as a child.
1: two and a half years that's that's a long time,
0: yeah. I spent quite a long time just like trying to figure out what I wanted to do.
1: When people asked you, like, what are you up to, Lana? Like, what would you say?
0: Well, I was basically saying that I'm writing scripts and like trying to figure out how to tell those stories. So I had like a lot of ideas in my head. I was trying to write those down. Ultimately, I didn't know anyone that I could work with. So it was like a lonely experience at that point. At that point, as I said, I I actually picked up a camera and I just started to go out by myself and was trying to shoot different landscapes um effectively and i was trying to like capture emotions by going out by myself with a camera and shooting landscapes because that was what i could do by myself with like one of the tools that i had on site at that time
1: and how old were you when you picked up the camera again
0: about i think like 23 ish when i started picking up a camera seriously picking up a camera not just for fun (laughs)
1: yeah was this all all outside of munich
0: yeah, this was pretty much all kind of within Germany, at least.
1: Around what year was this?
0: This was around 2012 2013.
1: Was there a idea of like developing a portfolio? Were you just trying to understand like how to capture landscapes again? Or did you have a mission or vision in mind?
0: So there was a little bit of a plan. I was always a huge fan of National Geographic when I was growing up. As I said, I was always like out in nature, playing around as a kid. And National Geographic was kind of like a magazine that followed me throughout my childhood and as I was Like growing up as a teenager, I would always also read their stories and I was interested in like learning about different wildlife that they were writing about, different explorers that were going out and like finding. They have the
1: coolest stories and photos. It's like National Geographic. I, I, I had National Geographic like stacks of those yellow magazines, like, you know, six feet high and thumbing through those, you're seeing some of the most incredible things in the world.
0: Exactly. And that was at that point when I was taking photos of landscapes and going out into nature, I was kind of reconnecting with that like initial, I guess, awe that I felt when I was reading National Geographic and that initial awe for like discovering nature that I um, felt when I was kind of looking into the magazine. So that goal started to sort of resurface. And so ultimately, I I honestly had no idea how to get into a magazine at that point. I was completely clueless, um, just trying to at least take some really good pictures and um, then figure out what I was going to do with them and how I was going to kind of reach people that were maybe interested in publishing them somewhere. The first goal, as I said, was just to build a portfolio with kind of this little kind of spark in the back of my mind that I would love to be in National Geographic at some point.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you're it, it, it's cool. That it's like this starts so simply where it's like, I want to be a photographer. So how do I do that? Well, I just have to have an array of photos and like, it can start that simply, but also, you know, you're talking about things in the back of your mind when you were younger with National geographic, but, uh, we talked a little bit about the Northern lights, where, you know, you read the, the, his dark materials and there was like the, the beauty of the Northern lights. And, and I, I imagine that would make a, a hell of a photograph. So it, was that something that resurfaced is something that you might want to add to that portfolio?
0: It was something that resurfaced, um, eventually. Uh, as I said, this was a goal that I had as a child, but I only started to connect that goal with like the goal of becoming a photographer. Um, when I was a little bit older, I was about to become 24 years old. It was somewhere towards the end of the year. My birthday is on Christmas on the 25th of December. And I started to realize that if I wasn't pursuing my dreams, I would eventually be 70 or 80 by the time that I saw the things that I want to see in the world. And I just decided, you know, I did want to, I remembered that I wanted to see the Northern Lights at some point. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to book a ticket to Finland by myself and go there and hope that I see the Northern Lights. It's winter. They're supposed to be there. I had never shot the Northern Lights before. I had a camera. I wasn't a great landscape photographer by all, by any means. I was just like practicing at that point and building my portfolio. But I was like, I want to push myself further. That took quite a lot of research because first of all, I didn't know how to photograph the Northern Lights. So um, I actually bought an ebook from another photographer and I just kind of read it and tried to figure out what settings he was using, how he was searching for their Northern Lights, like what he was doing. I found out from his ebook that there's a website which you can kind of check to see when the Northern Lights are out and when they're going to be in your region on a map. So I kind of, you know, made a note of that website. I uh, went to a couple of stores, asked them, like, what type of equipment I need for, like, really, really cold temperatures. Um, Bought some, like, Arctic boots and really (laughs) large coat for, like mine for like really freezing temperatures and um
1: that's a mission you're you're going like full I I mean negative like what does it how cold does it get out there
0: so it was minus 22 degrees where I was at
1: wow (laughs) so you get all this equipment you get the parka the boots the equipment that you need for your camera gear and you have this website bookmarked what is it like landing in Finland
0: so the way that you access lapland is actually to go through the main town of finland which is helsinki so at first i landed in helsinki and then i had to lay over there and i had to fly all the way up north to a small town called Ivalo. so i landed and there were about like 30 people at the airport it was a tiny airport and it was completely white outside and really really dark there was snow everywhere so it was quite intimidating, I would say, when I landed. And you're there and I was alone, like, right? I'm there alone. So I'm like, where am I? And I was kind of like excited, but also really afraid. And I had to get on an airport bus because this town that I was staying in, it's a little town called Sariselka, which has three hundred inhabitants. It's tiny and you couldn't access it like directly on foot from the airport. So I had to take an airport bus. So I got dropped in to this little town so it was night it was freezing it was like minus 22 degrees fahrenheit i had like a large suitcase with me and all of my camera gear and i was just like lugging it through the snow and i had no idea where i had to go so i saw the supermarket nearby and i just went inside and i asked them in english like hey do you know this address like do you know where i have to go no one spoke english but they did understand that there was an address that i was looking for So the weirdest thing that happened was that the actual owner of this cabin worked at the supermarket and they called him up and he couldn't speak English. He just like gave me a key, pressed it into my hand and he just pointed. He was like around the corner, there's a cabin. So I went around the corner and I actually found the cabin and managed to open it with the key. What an adventure
1: already. You're just trying to stay in a cabin and now it's already an adventure. So how do you get ready for your next few days there?
0: When you're shooting the Northern Lights, you need to find like a spot with no light pollution. So I decided that like the next day, as soon as it was going to get dark, I was going to go into this like National Park and just like try to find a little spot where I could wait for the Northern Lights to appear. So that was kind of like the plan that I made for the next day that I was just going to like put on all of my equipment and just go out and kind of try my luck at finding the Northern Lights and just kind of like wait it out, scout the area a little bit to see like what the good spots are, where I can shoot. The next day I went out and I was kind of scouting the national park. I spent like kind of the day just checking the map, trying to keep warm, trying to keep my equipment fully charged and free from any sort of like ice that formed on my lenses as I was going out. And it was, you know, already Quite late. It was evening and I was kind of hopeless. The map was like basically showing there weren't going to be any northern lights. So I was like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to go out. I'm just going to walk around and maybe I'll see something. I got very lucky my first night. And it's good that I didn't trust the map because I went out with all of my gear and I saw this like little strange looking cloud right above my cabin. Turns out the cloud wasn't a cloud, it was actually the northern lights. And it was one of the most spectacular shows that the community had seen that entire season up to the point when I came. So I got super lucky.
1: What did it look like?
0: It started out, as I said, as like a small cloud, but then it spread into this like long green kind of winding line across the sky. And that line just kind of spread into different directions, started winding in like all different shapes and sizes. And eventually it started also kind of developing different colors. So the greens weren't green anymore. They were also like pinks and yellows and they were just like dancing around the skies. I was practically like in knee deep snow for about three and a half hours just trying to take pictures of the Northern Lights My eyelashes had frozen by that point to the point when I was blinking, my eyes were sticking together. But at that point, it didn't make a difference because the Northern Lights and kind of the show that was going on before my eyes was so much more important and so much more spectacular than anything that was like happening to me physically. It was, as I said, like a spectacular experience for me. And it really moved me because it felt like all of those kind of fantasies that I'd had and all of these like ideas that I'd had about the Northern Lights were actually fulfilled.
1: Well, you've had this dream for so long to have it become real. I mean, that's a beautiful thing. And I think like it shows you that maybe all of your dreams can become real.
0: That experience like lit a fire in me. And I was like, If this can happen, then anything can happen at that point. It kind of motivated me again after having like these two and a half years of just like not knowing where I was going, what I was doing. It was like this first kind of spark, literally, of light, which showed me that there was potential to have these sort of experiences more often and to kind of explore these types of experiences in nature with my camera.
1: How do you start developing ideas about your own mortality? What are the thoughts that come sitting in the forest looking up at the stars and northern lights? Like, what are you thinking about your own life?
0: Well, first of all, when I'm sitting in the middle of a forest looking up at the stars, I realize that I'm only a little speck in time in this universe. It reminds me that. Yes, I have this dream and I have these big ambitions, but they're only going to be a little moment in time unless I immortalize them through telling stories and through reaching a lot of people that are going to perhaps either tell these stories to their children or talk about, you know, different landscapes, perhaps that I show on my pictures to their grandchildren, show them things that can inspire them for the future.
1: Do you think when you come back and have these experiences, you come back like too different where it's like you might have trouble connecting with the people that you used to have a lot more in common with?
0: I think that I come back different in the sense that I can inspire other people to go out and explore because as storytellers, we live through stories. And I think we try to inspire other people to kind of be more curious about their own environment, explore more, go out more try new things, see new things. So for me, it's still kind of easier to connect to people because I have stories to tell and people love stories.
1: So obviously you had this incredible time in Finland telling the stories to your friends back at home. When did you start looking to the icebergs in Iceland?
0: I think 2013, I was trying to learn more about time-lapse photography at that point. So I pursued a workshop with a photographer in Iceland. This workshop didn't end up happening, but I had a ticket to Iceland. So I ended up going to Iceland by myself once again for a week. I didn't have a car, so I just decided to like go on different tours. And I realized that having a week in Iceland and having just like these short tours is not enough to be able to take really good pictures and it's not enough to be able to explore Iceland as a country. I realized that I needed more and I realized that I wanted to have like the flexibility to travel around Iceland. So I recruited three of my friends and traveled in a camper van all around Iceland in I think about 10 days. And that was when I first saw the icebergs in Iceland. So I really, really, really wanted to see what is called the Jökulsárlón lagoon in Iceland. It's like a very famous lagoon with a lot of icebergs that are breaking off of a nearby glacier. And uh, we spent an evening there just taking photos during like this beautiful sunset. The light was like completely pink. The icebergs were crackling in kind of the last sun rays. So I was taking pictures and shooting a little bit of video at that time. Not thinking anything about like getting published anywhere, just having, you know, this beautiful experience in nature and trying to capture it on camera as best as I could. And that like short moment of being at the icebergs in Iceland for one evening actually turned into a really interesting experience afterwards of um, getting published in National Geographic for the first time.
1: Wait, so how did you get published? How did that happen?
0: I have to backtrack a little bit here. The first publication that I actually had was of the Northern Lights after I came back from Finland. Back in the day when we didn't have Instagram or like extensive social media, there was a website called boardpanda.com where people were just posting a lot of different photography of wildlife or their pets or different subjects in general. And I posted my... Northern Lights pictures on there. And suddenly I had an email from an agency, a photography agency, who said, if you are interested, we'd really love to kind of sell some of your photos of the Northern Lights to a couple of online publications.
1: What did that feel like to have someone reach out?
0: I was really, really, really excited. But I was also like a little bit skeptical because I was like, is this real? Is this going to happen? I don't know if this agency is trustworthy. So I was going to, you know, wait it out and see if it actually happens. And then I was going to believe it when I see it. So I said, okay, I gave them some of my pictures to publish or to send out to different online publications. And a couple of days later, my picture of the Northern Lights appeared in the Telegraph, as one of their like cover photos of, on their website. Wow.
1: But is that you see it on the telegraph? Are you like, okay, I've I've made it?
0: I was bouncing up and down at that point with excitement because I thought I had made it, but it was very far from you know actually making it. It was my first publication. And I thought, wow, this is incredible. Like, you know, if I can go out and actually take pictures of nature and enjoy this experience and literally like explore a new country and something I've never seen before and get a publication, that's a win-win situation for me.
1: How much were you paid for that first publication?
0: This was like a British agency. So I think I got something like 30 pounds for my picture.
1: <laughs> 30 po- thirty bucks for the front page of the Telegraph?
0: Yeah, it was an online publication. So it was like a front page on their website. But I was still happy just because I got a publication at that point.
1: Now you can say I am a published photographer. So exactly. now lead me up to the icebergs. You get these incredible iceberg photos in Iceland. Do you do the same thing? Do you reach out to this like agency? How do you get in front of the right people?
0: I went back to Board Panda at that point. <laughs> To the website. And I posted my pictures there, hoping that they would get some traction. And surprisingly enough, I didn't realize this, but National Geographic editors were roaming on those websites back then. And I also got an email from an editor in Serbia. She saw that I think I was posting something about like being half Croatian. So she saw that I'm Croatian. She saw that I was taking pictures of icebergs, which again, back then wasn't as normal, and as standardized as it is today. And she reached out to me and she said, Hey, would you be willing to maybe write like a short article about the pictures that you took in Iceland of your icebergs for National Geographic in Serbia for the online kind of publication? Obviously, I said yes, because I didn't realize that I could even get into a publication like National Geographic with my pictures. I, I guess I wasn't as confident in my pictures back then. I didn't feel like I had enough skills. I didn't feel like I was good enough to be able to get into a publication like that. They ended up, I think, publishing about six or seven pictures on the online website as an article. And that was literally the starting point of my actual real ambitions to get into National Geographic.
1: I want to actually take the the Finland story to uh, another end, because not only did you get it published, but you did hold this incredible story earlier. So I imagine that was a story that you wanted to share as well, right?
0: Yeah, that was a story that I wanted to share. And I believe that the publication in National Geographic also kind of sparked my own motivation to start reaching out to different publications and editorials. So one of the editorials or publications um, that I'd reached out to was a German small-scale online blog called Rausia Magazine, and it literally translates to Get Out Magazine. (laughs) So this magazine was targeted at people who were looking to travel to different countries. Um, So I pitched my story from Finland to Rausia Magazine, and they decided that they would like to publish it. So I essentially put together a text and different photos, and they published it on their blog. And it was kind of like the start of my cooperation with small scale publications at that point. I think when that publication went live, I felt like my stories were finally actually being read, they were finally being seen. It was another confirmation after this first publication in National Geographic that I can continue this type of work, that I can continue publishing.
1: And so you had the confidence to do it again. How did you get the idea of Mongolia and orphans?
0: So these first kind of couple of experiences of actually traveling, especially traveling by myself, made me thirsty for more extreme experiences. I wanted to push myself and I wanted to push my limits and see kind of where I can go with my, with my camera and with my stories. And I wanted to look into Asia and try to experience a completely different culture, an environment that I had never been in, a completely different language that I can't understand. Um, So that was kind of like, I guess, the starting point of how I ultimately got to Mongolia and to the orphanage. I also thought back to my experience of working uh, for the nonprofit, which was telling stories of cancer patients at that point. And I realized how fulfilling it was for me to be able to tell stories of people that had been through a lot of struggle and challenge and still got out on the other side. So at that point, I thought it would be interesting to go into an orphanage and to listen to stories of children that have been through hardship and that are still perhaps going through hardship and seeing How they're thriving or how they're surviving in this environment to try to understand that aspect of humanity and how people who are in such a vulnerable state are able to kind of come to terms with this environment that they're thrown into against their will. So I found one of the largest orphanages in Mongolia at that point, which was run by a woman from Australia. And uh, I emailed them and I asked them if it would be okay for me to come in and take some pictures of the children that live there and kind of listen to their stories. And the ultimate goal for me at that point was to try to give back a little bit to the community. So I wanted to create an exhibition of the pictures that I was taking in Germany and raise funds for the orphanage at that point that I could donate from this exhibit and I reached out to the orphanage, kind of like with this idea in mind, and um, they were interested in working with me.
1: So I want to get to being on site um, and tell me about the drive over there.
0: The orphanage is not directly in the main city of Ulaanbaatar. It's um, in the outskirts of Ulaanbaatar, I think about one and a half hours drive away and um it's an off-road drive when i had arrived there um the children were they were playing in the yard i unpacked all of my things and i met one of the volunteers there who essentially showed me like where i was going to be sleeping which was in a yurt which is basically like a large mongolian tent and it's covered in leather um in order to kind of keep the warmth inside but essentially um you have kind of four beds in the tent, um, a leather floor and a small door, that a small wooden door that you can go in and out of um, the tent. There were three other girls from France who were sleeping in the same tent as I was. Uh, so I kind of introduced myself and we talked a little bit about kind of what their experiences were like with the children and kind of what my project was about. Then I got basically uh, chaperoned to the children to meet a couple of the children from the orphanage. One thing that I didn't understand at that point, which I think I should have informed myself better about is how much trauma can impact kind of behaviors of children. So a lot of those children were very mistrusting of me from the get go. Um, I was someone new who was coming in, And I had to prove myself in order to be kind of integrated into their community. I was a stranger. They didn't know if they could trust me. So um, the children were quite disinterested in meeting me and in getting to know me.
1: Like when you say not interested, how did you feel?
0: I was uh, surprised. I was taken aback at first because I didn't prepare myself, I think mentally for that type of situation. And I was naively expecting that the children would be happy to see someone and kind of to meet them and curious about, you know, just learning a little bit more about the person. But I understood at that point that I would have to work a little bit harder in order to kind of break those barriers down and to get them to actually um, interact with me and to trust me. And it was a sobering experience of um, perhaps realizing my own kind of, I guess naivete of coming in and immediately being accepted.
1: So how do you start to integrate yourself? Like how do you start to talk to these these kids and like allow them to see a bit of who you are?
0: The orphanage had two cooks, those were also volunteers from Australia who were cooking for the children every day. So those cooks had already made pretty good connections with the children. They got them involved in like everything they were doing. They were showing them like how to cut vegetables or how to prepare meat. So I realized that the kitchen was kind of like the hotspot to be. And that's where I tried to integrate myself the most. And I would help out. I would just help out the cooks and the kids were there. They were just also kind of trying to help out. They were getting different tasks from the cooks. So I would be like, "Oh, can I help you you know cut this carrot or can I help you like peel this potato?" So I was trying to kind of like involve myself with the kids through doing actions with them doing something together with them. That's when they started to kind of reciprocate one thing that I also did was I decided to be the nurse at the orphanage, so um, there were a lot of injuries that the kids would um like get through fights that broke out at the orphanage or through just playing a lot of times because the children have a lot of trauma there would be quite a lot of aggression at the orphanage so um, there would be situations where a child would throw a rock into another child's head and they would have an open wound and no one was taking care of that so I had access as a volunteer to like the cupboard with all the medical supplies and I would just take the child I would like you know, take care of them, um, put a bandage on their wound and like, you know, change their, their bandage or their plaster whenever they needed like a change. Um, so that's kind of how I started to connect with the children a little bit more. So from the experience itself, one thing that I took away is gratitude. Gratitude for like the life that I have and gratitude for having the privilege to grow up in this, in an environment where I have a family, where I have safety, where I have food, where I have shelter and where I literally can dream big and pursue my goals without any sort of obstacles or hurdles. In terms of photographs, I had a lot of different pictures of children at the orphanage in different situations. So, um... The children weren't just constantly working in the kitchen or going to school. We would also do kind of different trips um, with the children. So once we went to a river that they could kind of like swim in, a lot of the kids didn't know how to swim. So they had these like styrofoam flotations that they just kind of constructed from some sort of like pieces of trash that they had found. And they were floating in the river on these like pieces of styrofoam, just kind of trying to have fun in the water while not drowning. Um, So it was pictures of them just putting, you know, their stories into perspective a little bit.
1: So with all these photos, what did you what did you want to do with them?
0: So the end goal was, again, to do a photography exhibition with these photos and raise some funds for the orphanage. So I contacted um, a like basically a concert hall in my nearby town and I asked them if I could exhibit the pictures in their foyer because they had quite a lot of exhibitions uh, so that all the people that were going to like a performance or a concert in the theater would actually see the pictures before going in um, to the actual performance so they uh, were really happy to exhibit the pictures. And I ended up exhibiting for, I think, about um, three weeks at this hall. And I also had an opening for my exhibition, in during which I invited a lot of people from my community to come and to see the pictures. And I was doing a tour explaining kind of like what each image um showed and what the background of each image was and i collected some funds for the orphanage through doing this exhibit because through hearing these stories of these children and seeing the photographs people were actually very moved by how they lived and by their life and through their stories um so they were happy to provide a little bit of financial support which ended up then going to the orphanage
1: could you lead me up to uh when you would eventually do nesting in plastic?
0: So nesting in plastic was a project that um, came to fruition through an experience that I'd had prior to actually pursuing this project. I had wanted to go to an island called Helgoland in northern Germany for a while because I had heard that it's the only island which has seal populations um, in Germany. When I had gotten to the island the first time, um, I decided to, you know, go and wander around a little bit to explore my environment to see what else I could find on the island. And I ended up um, on some cliffs, which uh, were pretty much around the corner of my accommodation. And I saw that there were some birds on these cliffs. And I started to take some pictures of these guillemots. However, in the background, I realized that there was, there were some really strange kind of looking structures hanging off these cliffs. And I wasn't sure what they were. I thought they were algae. I took some pictures. I went back to my accommodation, went to the seals, you know, was photographing seals, not really thinking about what I had seen on the cliffs that day. However, when I got home from this trip, I was actually quite curious. I was like, what am I actually seeing? Are these algae? Are these, what What are these structures? So I decided to Google a little bit to try to figure out what I was act- what I'd actually taking pictures of. And it turned out that these strange kind of looking spaghetti like structures on the cliffs were um, actually pieces of plastic. That the birds had taken from the sea and integrated into their nests, thinking that they were algae. So you have like a bunch of red and blue kind of pieces of strings um, that were integrated into these nests, and that were strangely just like hanging off the cliffs and sticking out of of these nests. So my initial kind of idea was I really want to clean up all of this plastic. It's not okay that it's there. And I want to see what the regulations are. And if I, want to, if I can get a team together, that would help me to kind of like clean up these cliffs. A cleanup is not possible, first of all, because um, this rock on the cliffs is actually quite fragile. So it's quite dangerous to step on it and it's, it could break off. And second of all, um, there's so much plastic integrated into the nests that it would be extremely costly and extremely time-intensive to be able to clean it all up, and it would in fact be even worse for the birds because they would collect new plastic at sea and they would have to integrate it into their nests. And um, the fresh plastic is easier to get entangled into than like plastic that's been there for a couple of years. Uh, But I realized that I could go back to the island and I could take pictures of um, the problem to raise awareness of what's actually going on there and to show essentially that This marine plastic problem is not just a problem that's to be seen somewhere in Southeast Asia or like in low income countries somewhere across the world. But that it's right at our doorstep in Germany in a developed country. Then the pandemic hit. So I wasn't allowed to travel anywhere. We also had covid restrictions in Europe. No one was allowed to leave their homes. I had to cancel all of my travel plans and I essentially had to wait out um, this story. I was quite restricted in terms of the time frame when I could go because um, the birds migrate. As soon as code restrictions had lifted in the summer for two weeks to go to the island and, of Helgoland and to shoot the nests with the plastic with the birds and their chicks in them. I went back home um, a week later with the pictures and... Um, within another week after I came back, the we basically had restrictions again. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with the pictures. I My goal was to actually pitch them to a n- local magazine, um, which is called Terra Mater, which is local to Germany and to Austria. But they actually, um, they rejected the story, so they didn't really want it. And I... Thought, why not just take the chance and pitch it to National Geographic? I didn't think they would take it. I was like, it's probably not even their topic of interest. But like,
1: let's just try the moonshot.
0: Exactly. I was like, I'm just going to try it. If they reject me, you know, they reject me. And what, what can happen? That's like the worst that can happen. I didn't hear from them for about three months. And three months later, I got a message um, from the editor and she said hey we'd be interested in publishing your pictures next year would c- could you be able like would you be able to send us a couple more so we can kind of pick and choose what we want to do with the story so that was the moment where i was like this can't be serious
1: and this is a large scale publication
0: yeah and it's it was in the printed magazine so it wasn't an online publication I was very skeptical at that point. I was like, "Okay, I'm gonna believe it when it's published."
1: <laughs> yeah, when well, I'm holding the magazine in my hands.
0: Exactly. Basically, like after about six months of um, talking to the editors, talking to the writer, layouting, and you know, trying to plan kind of like what the publication and what the story was going to look like, um, the actual publication came out in April 2021. With a seven-page spread um, about the story on northern gannets and plastic pollution.
1: Being in National Geographic is like the, the 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 top of the top.
0: It was it was surreal. It was the most strange feeling going into like a supermarket, being able to pick up a magazine and see my story in it. That was kind of like the point at which I was like, okay. I'm good. (laughs) Like, I feel good about, I feel good about, like, where I am right now and about the work I'm doing. And I feel like this is where I'm supposed to be. You know, my focus wasn't necessarily on wildlife or on human stories, but it was um, a focus on minorities in terms of communities that don't really have a voice and that can't speak out for themselves.
1: Okay, so you are now published what did that change for your like your career like was it now like okay like full time living off of taking these pictures like how did to change the trajectory
0: um it changed the trajectory in that I had a lot more people that were interested in my work at that time
1: so where is everything today like what are you most excited about where are things leading to what's going on today
0: so, today I am still working for National Geographic. However, I've moved to the headquarters now um, to the States. I received a grant from National Geographic in 2022 to pursue a project on harbor porpoises and harbor porpoise research and conservation um, in Germany, in Denmark, and in the Netherlands. And this project is a long-term project, which started um, basically with research towards the end of 2022 and is continuing until September of this year, so 2023. And it's following different research institutes and trying to understand more about harbor porpoises in the North Sea and in the Baltic Sea in order to be able to protect the populations better and to conserve them long term
1: so looking back on your whole story looking back on everything you've accomplished like i mean you've you had this dream in your head really like when you were almost you know like 12 13 and you've taken it all the way up to now being a uh being published in national geographic having another grant where you're traveling the world exploring the arctic of exploring all of these incredible places what advice do you think you would give to someone who wants to get started in in photography and wants to gain a foothold like what advice would you give to those people
0: So I think the best advice that I would give to someone who's starting out in photography would be to not wait for permission to tell a story and by that what I mean is that if you have an interest in a particular topic or a curiosity about something specific that you would like to follow I would go out and shoot that regardless of whether you think that it's going to be published or whether it's going to get like public traction or not because I think that as long as you follow something that you're passionate about, you're also going to be able to tell that story and to shoot those photos in a way that it's going to touch and reach other people. Um, That's kind of like the most powerful advice that I've learned just generally through trial and error. Do things that you feel are right for you. Don't wait for other people to tell you what you should be doing and how you should be doing it.
1: Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner.
0: Our audio editing team lead is Ashley Jimenez with support from... Jessica Morales. Miley Lipton.
1: Suyu Pan. Kenny Wright. Josie Yo, Matt Fernandez. And Merritt Hill. Our outreach and research team lead is Desiree Nunez, with
0: support from Marissa Granados, Monica Lee, Sarah Tiersmer,
1: and Yao Liu. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at FindingFounders.co. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.